First time, long time. 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 Hey there, sports fans. How's it going? It's your boy, Richie Barone. And while you're sitting around sipping some eggnog, getting ready for the holidays, uh, talking to everybody about how much 2016 sucked. Uh, why don't you take a little trip back into memory lane with me? We got an, an interview here with Sean Estes, former Mets pitcher, came onto the team in 2002. Uh, I got to sit down with him the other day. I put on my fancy interview voice so he wouldn't be intimidated by my Long Island machismo. I was wearing a tap-out shirt, so I figured that would be enough to begin with. But uh, we talked about the Clemens incident where he threw at him and then hit a bomb off that guy. Uh, uh, and we talked about a bunch of other things, but you know, I can't really remember. I drank, uh, quite a bit last night. So enjoy the interview here with Sean Estes. We have Sean Estes now, former New York Met. Sean, welcome to the show. I appreciate you coming on. How's everything? Everything's good. Uh, my pleasure. Good, man. Good. So what are you doing now that, uh, you know, now that baseball's over, What's uh what's the day in the life of Sean Estes looking like? Well, <laughs> it depends on uh, what time of the year it is. Uh, you know, during this during the baseball season, I uh I got out of baseball. I retired in 2010, and then uh, you know the I took that first summer of, of uh, baseball and everything off, and just kind of got away from the game and kind of enjoyed a summer with my family. It's, it's kind of funny people don't realize that. You know, a lot, a lot of the things that you do, vacation-wise, and I mean, people in in the real world that live their, you know, their their normal lives, they, their vacation time is in the summer. But for us, that's when we're working, and so you miss out on on a lot of the things that they that go on over the summer, as far as you know, holidays over the summer, Fourth of July, you know, that type of stuff. Because you're playing, you're entertaining, and then then all of a sudden you get done playing, and you're able to uh, kind of enjoy you know, your your first summer without having baseball or having to work. So I did that, but then I realized that one, one summer was good enough for me and uh, got a little bored and and then got into broadcasting. So I uh, just started doing uh, the pre- and post-game show for uh, Comcast Bay Area, which covers the, uh, the, the San Francisco Giants. So I started doing that in 2011, and I've been doing it ever since. For During the season, I do about 40 games, and then uh, – and then in the off season, I, I chase a little two-year-old around. I got a 13 or 12-year-old that, that play. Uh, they're pretty busy in sports, so I'm coaching a little bit of baseball for my 13-year-old, and then uh, I'm a chauffeur the rest of the time. So it's pretty good balance. Nice. So uh, you realize that Fourth of July is not that much fun, and you went back to. Uh, <laughs> you went back yeah, to you know what? Life. It's funny because I've seen enough firework shows in my career because it seems like every team I ever played on they find an excuse to have a fireworks show because they know that's when they're going to get the biggest crowd. So, you know, you can only see so many fireworks shows in your life, but then uh, you realize that, you know, the 4th of July, that, that's what everybody gears up for, and you're like, wait a second, I've seen plenty of these. But, you know, just being able to go on vacation and, and, you know, lay on a beach, you know, hang out with your family with no stress, you know, that time of year, uh, there's something to be said about that for sure. So. It's not really wasn't all about the fireworks, but it was a lot about you know just the downtime and 
And, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty stressful life. I mean, yes, it's, it's a very, you make a pretty good living doing it and it's, and it's a game and it's fun, but there's a lot of stress on it from a day to day, you know, from looking at it from a day to day aspect. And especially for a position player that has to go out there and perform every day. Uh, oh, yeah, I believe once every five days for me, but for an everyday guy, yeah, it's, it's, it's a stressful life. Oh yeah, I believe it. I mean, and and speaking of stressful, I mean, did you find it any different? So you you played a ton in San Francisco, but then you wound up on the Mets. And did you find New York uh, to be more stressful than San Francisco? I did. Yeah, I mean, there is, you know, there's something to be said about you know, regardless of where you are, you, you want to go out there and perform well, and there is that stress just of you know going out there and and, and trying to be your best and perform, you know, for either for your team, for yourself, uh, you know, to, to make a living at, at doing what we, what we did. And, and so, um, yeah, there's that that goes along with it, but then, you know, you play in the fishbowl uh, of New York city and the expectation level, you know, goes up a notch. Uh, I, I you know, the, the, the media attention goes to another level. So there's just not as much, I guess if you want to compare it to another team I played for in San Diego, uh, I'd say probably a quarter of the media in San Diego on a day-to-day basis. Uh, the, you know, there's a lot. You're next to the beach. There's not as many people. It's not as concentrated. You can kind of live outside of the city of San Diego. And obviously downtown San Diego is no comparison to Manhattan. So you're not on top of each other. And, and it gets a little, you know, I felt I love New York City. It's my favorite place to visit uh, in the country. As far as the city goes, there's none better. But in order to work in New York is a different animal, you know. So it it, it did get a little claustrophobic for me, you know, because it starts to get hot. You know, living in the city starts to get you know a little different. Um, it gets a little bit more oh, congested. Yeah. Um, and then you know when you're not playing well as a team or individually for that matter, uh, it can be a miserable place to be, you know, just because. You know, that was a team in 2002 that we came into spring training and we had, there were some high expectations, not only from, you know, fans standpoint from, but from everybody in that clubhouse. Uh, they went out and signed a bunch of free agents. They traded for some guys, myself included. And I think that they felt that they had a team to compete in the NL East. Uh, but it seemed like everything went wrong that year. You know, everybody underperformed as far as career numbers go. And, and just, it, it felt like we couldn't, couldn't dig ourselves out of the hole we kept digging ourselves deeper and deeper and i think it's at one point our team lost 13 straight games so you can only imagine what it's like to play in new york in, in, in the midst of a 13 game losing streak where you know before you take the mound you're getting booed or by you know certain guys would get on deck and they'd get booed before they even stepped in the box so that's very yeah that's very mess that's very mess yeah you gotta you gotta you gotta you, gotta, you, gotta, you know you gotta get you gotta get your booze out. Gotta be well, out on the other side of that, right? You gotta get them. And the bluebirds were coming out, and, and you know you expect that. You understand it by playing against them, um, especially if you play against a Mets team that that isn't hasn't performed well, and and so you can you hear it as a visiting player from time to time. But it, it to have to endure it every day is is different. So it, it starts to really weigh on you and it starts to really start mentally, it becomes more of a grind than anything. On the flip side of that, you know, as bad as the bads are, as bad as it can get there and, and as bad as it, it is when things are going well, 
it, it's just as good. Um, so, you know, last year I was there for the, uh, for the one game, you know, wildcard playoff. Cause I was, you know, like I just mentioned, I was covering cover the Giants, and they played the match in the one game wildcard. And so you see, you know, a season or you know, a season where the team does well, it, it's to the next level. Good. So, you, you know, there's not a lot of in between, you know, playing in New York. And that's what I noticed. But when the good, when you get, when you're a good team, it, I don't think it gets any better. But when you're bad, it, it probably doesn't get any worse. Well, you know, speaking of uh, that one game playoff, I mean, if someone had told you before that game that Connor Gillespie was going to close his eyes and swing into one, I mean, that was, <laughs> that was unbelievable. That was, that was a yeah. heartbreaking moment for yours truly. Uh, but, you know, congratulations to the Giants. I thought, I thought they were going to win another World Series. I thought the even-year curse was a real thing. Uh, or not curse for you guys, but, you know, for the rest of the league. Where... Even your magic, yeah, yeah, right? You start yeah. to believe it a little bit, don't you? I mean, uh, it, it, was get, it was getting a little crazy. And... Yeah. Yeah, it was. But, uh... You know, as a, player, you, as a player, you don't really buy into that because you just you know how hard it is just to get to the playoffs, let alone win a World Series. And they won those first three World Series in 10, 12, and 14, not being the best team going into the playoffs, and they just ended up, uh, you know, a lot of luck their way, but obviously, you know, they they had a great team, but it just they they caught you know a little lightning in a bottle, and and that's what it takes to win a World Series. So I don't think the players bought into the whole even your thing, but then you know you go and beat Syndergaard in the match, and you have another unlikely hero in Connor Gillespie, and you can go back to 2010, and and there was a lot of unlikely heroes in different games that, like you said, never would have picked that guy to hit the home run. Uh, to send the Mets home, but uh, yeah, that, that seemed to be the formula for for Giants teams over the past, you know, six seven years, and kind of felt you know, Gillespie hits that home run and they win that wild card game that that maybe just maybe this is this is their this is another giant year, but uh, unfortunately they ran into a bus on the Chicago Cubs who were pretty much seemed destined to win it this year. So um, yeah, no one's beating the best. them. I think it makes it a little easier to take. I think for sure. I mean, you, uh, as a Mets pitcher, I don't know if you know this. I'm sure you do know this. But uh, you're forever a legend at City Field and Shea Stadium because uh, – and I need the backstory on this if you can provide it. So you go out there. You weren't on the team when it happened, but you drew the straw of, uh, you know, throwing a baseball somewhere near Roger Clemens. And then – you smashed a home run off him. Uh, I was in the stadium for that game. Was there a conversation? Oh, that, yeah, it, it was. It was uh, okay. real crazy. Uh, was there a conversation that went down? Did Piazza say, "Hey, listen, if you want to be part of the team, if you want to be like bros with the rest of the guys, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to throw the ball at this guy." Yeah, kind of like that. Uh, you know, it, not quite, but. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll I'll give you a little backstory, but I want to ask you as a, as a uh, as a fan, and I want you to be as honest as you can because you know there was there was a lot of hype going into that game, you know, and it, it felt really like a playoff atmosphere, you know, the day I took the mound against the Yankees um, at Shea oh, Stadium yeah. against Clemens, and and it, I think it got national attention. It might have been a nationally televised game. I can't remember, um, but. I want to ask you, as a, as a Mets fan, you know, it, when he didn't get hit, what was your initial reaction? 
To be honest, I was just glad that something happened because after the 2000 World Series, when he threw the bat at Piazza because he thought it was the ball, uh, which is just unbelievable, uh, I was yeah. I I understood it, but my instinct I I wanted Piazza to to just like storm the mound and rip his head off his body. So the fact that someone did yeah. anything was was phenomenal to me. I know that looking back on it, I know people were like, oh, you know, it didn't hit him, and and I think you know you caught some you caught some flack for that. But then when you when you smash a home run off uh, off the guy. I think all is forgiven, you know, I mean, and especially well, because I, I, you weren't even on the team. It's like, that's an, that's an amazing, yeah. you, you know, you stuck up for a guy yeah. who, who you didn't even play with when it happened. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you the story. I'll, I'll try to keep it as short as possible, but so I got done pitching the game before the Met, uh, like the Yankees and, and um, I can't remember, I think it might've been in Chicago. And I just remember talking about the game. And I, I talked about the game for about two seconds before the next question was, you know, realize who you're facing next. And so for the next four days, that was all the talk because I wasn't even aware of it. I had to be reminded of the story. I obviously watched the World Series where Clemens threw the ball at Piazza, but I, I didn't see the game where he hit him in the head earlier earlier on in the season. And I remember watching, a, you know, some highlights um, and seeing Piazza, you know, get carried off and then kind of read some things about it. But, you know, not being there, not, not being with the team. You don't really know all the details. So fast forward two years later, you know, he I allegedly had ducked the, the match the previous year in 2001. He was scheduled to pitch at Shea Stadium and came up with an injury or something. That was yep. the rumor. So they felt like that, you know, Clemens, you know, he, he couldn't do it again. And so, like you said, I drew the short straw on that one and ended up being the guy pitching. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I understood, you know, based on what I had heard and, and, and just being more informed about what happened, talking to Al Leiter and John Franco, guys that were on the team then. And um, really nobody said a whole lot to me between, you know, when I finished my start before the Yankees and then leading into that start. No one really said anything except for the guys that weren't on the team back in 2000. Uh, Roberto Alomar Jr. and, and – um, and Mo Vaughn, to name a couple guys, had come up to me during during the time between my starts and just said, hey, don't worry about the hype right now. You weren't here in 2000. Go out there and pitch your game. you got to go out there and try to beat the Yankees. That should be your focus. Uh, you can't focus on all this other stuff, or you're not going to be able to you know, pitch your game, which I agreed 100%. My right. answer was, well, if Piazza, if Piazza comes up to me and says, hey, you know, I want you to, to drill Clemens, then – you know, then I'm going to do it because I'm going to be a teammate. I'm going to be a good teammate and do that because that's to me that's the only guy that that matters at that point because that's the guy that had the, the vendetta with with Clemens. So if being Piazza's teammate at the time, if he came up to me and said, you know, he wanted me to do that, then I would have done it. You know, out of right. respect for him and and what happened. So that didn't happen, um, and so I was just going to go out there and pitch. Well, before I went out there and pitched that day. Uh, Bobby Valentine calls me into his office right before I'm going to go out there and start warming up and, and Piazza's in there. And, and really all I got was, you know, you know, the, you know, the circumstances here. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm completely aware of them now. Um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks to the, to the, the, the abuse I've taken for the past four days from the media, you know, and, and what am I going to do this and that? And uh, I said, well, so what are we going to do? And he said, well, here's the sign. And Piazza gives me the sign that he's going to use if we need, if we want to, throw at him. That's all I had. 
going out to the mound that day. So, you know, obviously the moment came, you know, I think it was the third inning, you know, Clemens comes up and I knew I had one shot. The, you know, everybody in the stadium knew what was going to happen or assumed what was going to happen and the umpires included. So I wound up and threw the ball and, and, you know, I, and, you know, you're not trying to throw the ball behind them. You're just trying not to miss them. Right. But, you know, if you're, if someone's throwing an object at you and you know it's coming at you, you're, you probably have a better shot getting out of the way of it than you do if, if you don't know it's coming. Um, so, you know, the ball was thrown a little bit behind him and he ended up, you know, moving, you know, moving forward a little bit and missed him. So umpires come out, warn both teams, which I thought was ridiculous. I thought, I felt that at that point they should have given me another shot before they warned us. So the, the warnings are in place, but, and I'm thinking, I'm not throwing at the guy, and I'm not going to try to hit him again unless I get the sign, and I didn't get the sign again. So I went up there and, and pitched to him. I think I ended up striking him out, that at bat. So that happens, and then I come up later on in the game and hit a home run, and which was pretty cool, and I felt like that, you know, for me, it was just a it was just a great moment in general in my career, you know, being able to take the rocket deep. But I was also pitching a pretty good game, and I felt oh, yeah. that you know we're trying to go out there and win ball games, and we're playing the Yankees, who are you know probably the best team in baseball at the time, and and so you know that was my focus. So I I didn't feel like oh we got him back, that was sweet revenge because Piazza taking him beat would have probably been more revenge. I mean I I didn't have a whole lot of I didn't have any feelings one way or another toward Clemens. I didn't hate the guy. He didn't do anything to me. And I wasn't right. on the team in 2000 to get worked up about it. So anyway, long story, even longer. Um, you know, so that happens. We win the game. Uh, obviously, I, I, after the game, I, I get a couple guys, you know, from the media saying, hey, I want to talk about how I pitched. But really, it was all about, you know, missing Clemens. And that was the focus. So we had a team party that night. It's funny, not a team party. We had a party at a, at a place in New York where a mutual friend of Mark Guthrie's and Roger Clemens. Um, Mark Guthrie was on the Mets at the time. He had her at a place. And so a bunch of the Yankees were there and a bunch of my teammates from the Mets were there. And I knew Giambi from when he played for the A's and I was on the Giants. And he came up right. and he said, hey, great game, pitched a great game. And, and uh, I was like, thanks. I got, it just sucks that, you know, that everybody's focused on the whole Clemens and me not hitting them thing and it kind of overshadowed you know the game that I pitched and me hitting a home run he's like hey dude he's like don't worry about that he said he said I played here long enough to realize that even if you would have hit Clemens it wouldn't have been good enough because they had so much anger toward him in the city or not just the city but Mets fans did that they they wanted him to be hit in the head and carted off on a stretcher with like blood coming out of his ears you know, and so, and you're not going to be the guy to do that. You know, you're, that's not in your, that's not in your DNA because he knew me. I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a mean spirited person, but I mean, and you're not as a pitcher trying to drill anybody in the head and, 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 and their career. So he put it in perspective for me and, and it was almost kind of like nothing was going to be good enough that day, you know? So yeah, I mean, uh, Met, Mets fans are pretty better that night. Yeah, Mets fans are pretty high maintenance that way. So you know, it's it's pretty much, you know, I mean, I don't know if you saw. Well, if it, put it this way, if if Al Leiter or John Franco had been on the mound that day, I'm sure that they would have probably thrown at him until they hit him, and they would have been thrown, they would have been tossed from the game, and uh, and then they would have been heroes. So it, that's just kind of the way that that even though the Mets fans, that's how they operate. Which you know, love them or hate them, it, it, it's it's who they are. 
And like I said, when things are good, they're real good there. I mean, I, I loved that lighter, but I, from my experience watching that lighter, I almost feel like he would have tried to suplex Roger Clemens and like put him in a, in a rear naked <laughs> choke or something. He was, you know, I, I, any right. which it would have been kind of funny to watch. Oh yeah, anytime I saw field level, it sounded like a, like a Monica Seles tennis match. Al Leiter was just screaming every pitch, just every ounce of his yeah, body. Yeah, he, he was a he was a grunter, man. He was for sure. He was fun. He was fun to watch because he was always twitching and and uh, talking to himself and and very intense when he when he took the mound. I I actually talked a lot about pitching with him and just how to kind of get that that edge, you know, when you do pitch. And he had some interesting, you know theories on how to get that edge but just a yeah a fun guy to play with but like I said he was a guy that was wrapped up with the emotions of that game in 2000 or both games I should say and uh you know with friends with Piazza so he he had probably more of a hatred toward Clemens than anybody else Who was, uh, oh yeah I mean, I'm sure did you ever get to speak with Roger Clemens did he say anything to you after the at-bat or no, but I did see him that same night that I talked to Giambi. I, I, Clemens was at the same party because, like I said, it was his buddy that owned the club. Right. And, uh, and so I, I did talk to him, and he, he, we didn't talk at all about, you know, he knew. He had already, he had already relayed through, through Mark Guthrie's buddy, you know, that he knew that he said, hey, you know, tell Sean I know what he's got to do. Um, I'm not going to do anything about it. Not that I was worried about that because I think that I understood at that point, like what's he, you know, was he going to come charge the pitcher after he, you know, he knew it was at stake. He just wanted it to be over with. And so he, he put my mind at ease anyway, even if I, even if he thought I was worked up about it before the game even, you know, started. But then I saw him that night. We didn't even talk about that. He was just ticked off. I hit a homer off of him. That's <laughs> the game. I mean, you so were a pretty he, good hitter you know, back in your day. I was okay. You know, I could hold my own. You know, I look, I like to think that I was above average, but you know, that's all relative. You know, I, I, I watch, you know, I watch some guys now, you know, they're, they're actually legitimate threats in the box. And I wasn't, I wasn't a threat, but I could run into one from time to time. And then, you know, once in a while, I think I had four, four major league, you know, four career home runs. So if the pitcher was supplying the power and I ended up having, I had pull power if anything. So if they missed their spot and I was able to turn one around, I could get lucky once in a while. But no, I, I, I was okay. You know, I took some pride in it, though. I, I worked hard at my hitting and, and considered myself a pretty decent athlete. So I just, my, my goal was just not to try to go out there and be an out. You didn't want to be an out. You know, there's no sense in even pitching and, you know, and, 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 and going up there and, and not taking pride in your hitting. And you see a lot more of that these days. Pitchers are more pitchers or athletes, and, and they do actually become, you know, better hitters. And, and I look at the Giants rotation, and the Mets rotation is probably two of the best hitting rotations in the major leagues. Cubs got to be up there as well, and you just you know you, you, if you're not an automatic out, you got to make you make that opposing pitcher work a little bit harder. It can only work to your advantage. Well, you got something on uh, Madison Bumgarner because I don't know if you know this, but there's two pitchers that have hit grand slams in Giants history. It's you and him, and you did it first. So <laughs> I did it first, but he did it twice. <laughs> that, that's true, but you know so he, it doesn't matter. He's got. Right, unfortunately, hey, fortunately and unfortunately, I I worked for the Giants. I worked for the for Comcast and cover the Giants, so I know way too many of these stats. But uh, I I do know that every time, you know, any any 
any leaderboard or, or record board that I'm on uh, with the Giants for whatever reason, Bumgarner is is, is like steps on all those things and squished them. And he, he pretty much says, you know, whatever you can do, I can do better. So I pretty much conceded the fact that Bumgarner is going to go down as the best left-handed Giant of, of history in Giants history. I, I've already conceded that. I wasn't even I, in the top ten probably, but there was some things that I had done that he hadn't, but now he's done them all. So, Except the one thing he's still got, he's got to win 19 games. That, that's the thing that we, you know, he's been at 18 twice with the chance to win 19 and hasn't been able to get it. Um, not all by his fault, but, uh, you know, I think that at some point he'll end up getting 19 or 20. But so far, 18, he's only got an 18 and I got 19. So I guess that's the one thing I got on him. Hey, you hang on to that as long as you can. I mean, uh, and, and before I let you right? go, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this with us. I'm gonna just name a few Mets players. I just want to hear the first word that comes to mind from guys you played with, because you played with a, a pretty eclectic team, like you said back in the day. Uh, a lot of big signings. So I'm gonna name a few of these guys, and just uh, you know, spit out whatever word first comes to mind. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, Robbie Elmore. Oh man, um, Robbie Alomar. Jeez, uh, like what comes to mind? What comes to mind? What comes to mind? Uh, just um, uh, magician, I guess. Magician. He was unbelievable second base. What he could do, and and, and with his bat too. He was a magician. Steve Trestle. Rain delay. <laughs> That's exactly what I was hoping for. <laughs> Longest games of all time. <laughs> throw, the, throw the ball already, Steve. And it, he got, you know what I loved about Steve is he, he knew it and he didn't care. He's like, this is the way I'm doing it. And he had a lot of success with it, so more power to him. That's amazing. Uh, Ty Wigginton. Oh, yeah, he was a rookie that year when I was when I was a Met. That was his first year. Um, Bulldog. I'm just hard-nosed. And finally, uh, actually, two more. First, uh, John Franco. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> Johnny. Uh, oh, man, what's the word? Hard to do one word with Franco. Mob boss? Um, just, what's that? I was thinking, like, mob, mob bosser. Yeah, yeah I like a tongue. Mob bosser. So the first thing that came to mind was Italian, but, you know, I mean, I, just, <laughs> I, I guess really it came – it, like the epitome of Italian, you know? Uh, that's a, that's almost a given like, in New York. Yeah, right? Great teammate, though. And finally, Mike Piazza. How was he? Piazza, wow, you said eclectic was the first word you used leading into this, and I'd have to say that would probably be a good word for Piazza, a very eclectic guy. Uh, you know, had a lot of interest that people probably didn't know about. It was very, He's a very smart guy. Um, not a great... You know, not a great catcher, but an unbelievable hitting catcher. You know, probably the best of all time. Um, but, uh, you know, that that's another thing. It, 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 like Traxel being a rain delay, he didn't care because that's what – Piazza didn't care if he was a great catcher. He just cared about, you know, hitting and being an adequate catcher. And so he did that enough to become a Hall of Famer. So, um, you know, he had the right formula, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, Piazza, you know, you'll, just another hard worker too. You know, just a um, – I'd say probably one of the most mentally tough guys I've been around, uh, players I've, I've played with. But, 
and I'll also think another word that comes to mind is Piazza's strongest hands, just hand strong, hand strength. Uh, probably some of the strongest hands I've ever seen. Um, you know, he used to punch the wall when he'd get mad. And uh, that, that was how he let out his frustration. I mean, he hit it as hard as he could. <laughs> like a brick wall? A oh, yeah, a brick wall like or the dugout wall. I mean, he'd come off he'd come off, and if he struck out or something, he'd, he'd haul off and smack the wall as hard as he could. And you'd hear it. It would sound like he broke his hand every time, and he never did. So <laughs> I, I would just have to – the guy had some strong hands. <laughs> Jesus. So uh, that is funny to some of the things that when you say someone's name that you think about. But, uh, yes, eclectic, strong hands, good drummer, musician. So. And if I say Armando Benitez, does, does, uh, does the song Suavemente come to mind? What do you call it? The, that he had the uh, – I'm a big, like, at bass song guy. I think it's important to have a bass song that gives you character. Uh, and same yeah, thing with yeah, closers, yeah. and Armando Benitez always had Suavemente, and it was stuck in my head for like five years because I've never even heard that. Oh yeah, when you get a chance. I've never heard. I've never heard that about Benitez. No. Go listen to Suavemente uh, uh, by Elvis Crespo, and the the memories will come flooding back into your head. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. I'll do that right when I get off. Yeah. No, the well, only memory a, the, the only memory I have about Benitez is not a good one, but, or is a good one is yeah. his home run he gave up to J.T. Snow in 2000. Oh God, yeah, so. there were a few of those. He was he was a he was a good pitcher from like April to September, and then sometimes yep. things went wrong. A lot of Brian Jordan yep. home runs, some J.T. Snow. Yeah, and it was uh, yep. it got rough, but you know. Yeah, but, well, uh, I think make things interesting, so. <laughs> As as many closers do, but uh, Sean, yep. thanks thanks so much for coming on, man. This has been great. Yeah, good to be uh, good to be on, and uh, we'll do it again soon. All right, that's gonna do it. Our thanks to Sean Estes, the Great One, as they call him. Uh, I think I don't think anybody else has that nickname. So Sean, that's all yours. That's pro bono. All right, you take that one and run with it, and uh, that'll do it for us. Next week we're gonna have a very special Christmas episode a first time long time that may or may not involve some Christmas carols so uh, get ready for that and we'll talk to you later yeah hey fellas this is Chris from New Hyde Park first time long time hi this is Bob from Greenpoint first time long time yeah Hey guys, this is Audie Bevelacqua from Hap Hog. First time, long time. <laughs>